Okay, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm very excited to be joined by my guest for today. That is Leah Labresco Sargent. You have probably seen her work somewhere out there in the world of the Catholic internet. She is most recently the author of Building the Benedict Option. Prior to that, she wrote Arriving at Amen. And that book was a spiritual memoir of sorts because Leah Labresco Sargent is a convert from non-belief or atheism. And so I want to talk to her about that today and a lot of other stuff. So in the meantime, Leah, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. It's really great to have you, I guess, back again in some ways, because three years ago you were on Vernacular Podcast with my wife, Sally, and I. And in fact, uh, we made a transcript of that, and I'll link to that in the show notes, because we had a really good conversation then about some of your reasons for becoming Catholic. But now we're three years further along in this journey. You've been a Catholic for, I think you mentioned, six going on seven years. So there are some things that have been, that have been happening in the, in the U.S. church especially, and I'd love to get your read on that. But let's first back it all the way up. You used to be a, an atheist blogger for Pathios, and then eventually you had to have this awkward conversation with the Pathios management and say, hey, I'm no longer going to be atheist. I'm becoming Catholic do I get a new blog? How can I switch blogs? Whatever. <laughs> so let's back up all the way to that and tell us about your, maybe if, if we need to go back as far as your childhood, let's hear about the reasons for your position as a firmly ensconced atheist and then what drew you to the Catholic Church. Well, you know, atheism is something I don't think always needs a, a robust um, explanation. You know, when I grew up as an atheist, I mean, I definitely, that's what I identified as, you know, it's always kind of weird from an atheist point of view to make that a big part of your identity because it's a little like saying, you know, I'm a non-life on Marser, right? Where that is a pretty reasonable default assumption unless you see evidence that changes your mind. Um, and one thing that even as an atheist, you know, I always found kind of unsatisfactory about parts of new atheism is atheist doesn't tell you very much about who you are and how you plan to live your life. So, it was very incomplete to say I was an, just an atheist because that tells you nothing about my ethics or my metaphysics. So it would have been more accurate to say that for a lot of, you know, a surprisingly early part of my childhood, I was a stoic deontologist. And that told you a bit about how I made moral choices. An atheist told you very little. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've actually known quite a number of stoic deontologists as well. And for me, I think it's always I always come back to the question of where do you derive your morality from? And I think I remember from our previous conversation, that was a central question for you that eventually led you to the church. Is that accurate? That's right. So tell me a little bit more about that. As a Stoic deontologist, if we, if we want to describe you as that, what did you think of or where did you think of morality as coming from? Well, I thought of it, I liked a lot the Kantian framework of whatever you do, you have to be able to will as a universal law. There are no special moral rules that only apply because it's me, Leah, doing it. If I want to, um, let's say, jaywalk in this situation, I have to be all right with everyone jaywalking in this situation. And to be honest, as a New Yorker, mostly I am. Um, but for other moral questions, you know, I'm tempted to cut in line. I'm tempted to cut this corner. You know, Kant really points to a lot of our moral rules fall apart when we make exceptions. You know, if someone can cut the line, there is no line to cut ultimately. And so I liked that framework of it has to be true for everyone to be true. And the other thing I liked a lot about Kantianism particularly, um, and this was something I abandoned in time was, you know, the most moral acts are done purely out of duty. 
they're not done because someone's going to reward you for doing them. They're not done because someone's going to praise you or like you better for doing them. You do them purely for the sake of doing the right thing itself. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, and in college, I sort of fell in love with Kantian ethics as well because of the categorical imperative. And because like you said, the best act is the one that's done out of a sense of duty. And I think in this instance of the popular show, The Good Place, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but- Oh, we're big fans. Okay, yeah, there's a very Kantian system that drives a lot of the ethical thinking that's advocated in that show by by Chidi, the ethics professor. So um, I appreciate that show, but- when you were sitting there as a Kantian, as a good Kantian, applying the categorical imperative, why did you find that the Kantian system fell short? Or in what ways did you find that it fell short? Well, the biggest one, and I want to be clear, this may not be Immanuel Kant's fault, that it was definitely a problem for me trying to apply it, um, was that my Kantianism kind of taken to its natural conclusions uh, thought it was kind of too bad if other people were nice. Um, you know, and this this is a particularly attractive philosophy in high school because when you're a high school Kantian, you're not very popular. So the idea right, of yeah. I do everything purely out of duty and it doesn't matter if anyone likes me, like that worked great. Like, um, but the problem is that as I was discussing this in college, you know, my kind of idea that moral behavior is best when operated into a headwind, right? And I'm a I'm a more moral person in a world where everyone despises virtue, and so I'm never rewarded for it, and I soldier on anyway. Um, than in a world where other people like virtue, um, it's messy, right? Like you can tell, ironically, that that version of Kantianism doesn't universalize very well. Why should I get to be the lucky person who is despised by everyone else um, when you know other people are not getting that benefit and thus can't be as virtuous as me? Right, right, absolutely. I think another problem that that Kantianism has is that it sort of posits these universal laws as as a, almost like a, a platonic form in and of themselves, and there's not much that connects them or sort of makes them incarnate to our existence here and now. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but for me, I think the the main kind of question I started to grapple with in college is a moral system, like it should be possible for everyone to follow it at the same time and for that to be good. And the version of Kantianism I'd built in my head didn't work that way. Right. Well, what would you say to someone who says, well, the that was just the version of Kantianism that you built in your head. If you were a true Kantian, you wouldn't have encountered that problem and then therefore may not have encountered the need for God. I mean, that's a claim someone would can make and then they'd have to demonstrate to me that there's something else that holds together. And ultimately, Kantianism wasn't my only problem that kind of demanded the solution of God. But I'll be the first to admit that I understood the grounding for the metaphysics of morals much better than some of Kant's other work. So I'm not... Um, a completely proficient Kant scholar. Right, that makes sense. Well, what was it that led you to be convinced that the God of the Christian faith was the <laughs> ultimate source of morality? So it was, it was kind of still a couple steps further on because from Kantianism, I headed towards virtue ethics, which really did solve my biggest problem with Kantianism, which was it's possible for everyone to do virtue ethics at once, partly because virtue ethics does not value uh, it should be as unpleasant as possible to be virtuous, right? Virtue ethics not only says, you know, do the things that are good, but make acting well part of your being until it's natural to you. So you're not having that kind of 
push to white knuckle your way against a headwind. It's make being moral as much a part of you as breathing. Um, make it part of your bones, knit it into your being. Um, and then everyone can do that at once. You know, Hypothetically, we all have a lot of work to do to get there. Um, but the problem with virtue ethics is it didn't have that kind of nice abstract approach to ethics the way Kantianism did, where I could use that universalizability as a moral appeal in Kantianism, which you you actually can find some problems with it, but it felt much more straightforward versus virtue ethics says I should be, you know, resemble the virtuous person. And then you get to the question, okay, where does that template come from? It really pushed me into a more teleological frame of mind saying, what are the ultimate ends that I'm made for? If I'm going to be a good human being, what counts as good for a human being? And that's where kind of some of the naturalistic assumptions that we can kind of assume carry us farther than they do until we take a look at them philosophically really fall apart. Because if a human being is just, you know, a variety of evolutionary impulses, you can't get to morality from there. You know, there are a lot of stable evolutionary strategies that are clearly terrible. And a lot of what makes us human is the ability to go, oh, this is a sustaining but horrific pattern. And we're not going to be, say, gorillas and court through infanticide. It it works for gorillas in the sense of evolution, but it's monstrous. Um so we really go beyond that, and you have to go beyond just the material world, ultimately, to my atheist dismay, uh, to be able to say, what does it mean to be good at being a human being? Yeah, your critique of virtue ethics really resonates with me because I, I've taught ethics to students at the University of Texas, and when we, would, when we look at any situational ethics question, um, my students loved using utilitarianism or some sort of Kantian approach rather than virtue ethics because virtue ethics is very ambiguous on the question of what do I do in this situation? And it's much easier to revert to, to a different system like a, a Kantian framework to answer that question. But I think you're right that, if I understand you correctly, virtue ethics posits that you should act in such a way to become the person you want to be, but that presupposes you have an answer to the question of what am I for? So in other words, the question of what should I do presupposes that you've already asked, what am I for? So that you can achieve the character that you need to achieve. Yep. And one thing that, you know, did strike me as very true later after my conversion is that the Christian and uh, the Christian philosophy and in the Old Testament too, really makes the claim, this isn't alien to us. You know, morality isn't a, a complicated puzzle that's only for philosophers. Right. That the natural law is given to us. Um, there's a great part, I think, in Deuteronomy, and I'm not great at citations, where, you know, Moses is just saying, like, is, you know, the word of God, you know, is what you should do and be, like, somewhere far off on a mountain? He's like, no, it's in your mouth right now. You'd only have to speak it. Right, right. Um, and that that is kind of... It's Deuteronomy 30.11, my husband tells me oh, perfect. from across the room. Thank you, Alexi. <laughs> um, but that is, you know, that is true. And I think it leads people to discount philosophy sometimes because in most of our life, you know, how do I behave to be the person I want to be isn't a super mysterious question. It's not all, you know, homicidal trolleys. Um, the question is, how do I kind of retain the strength of will to pick what I already know is right? And there's actually a beautiful virtue ethicist sci-fi story that I do want to recommend to your readers. Oh, please. Um, 
called Anxiety is the Dizziness of Freedom by Ted Chang, who's a sci-fi author I really love. And it's really posing the question in the context of sort of a branching multiverse, how do I behave now to make being a good person in the future more likely? And the answer is the relatively boring virtue ethicist answer, which is I have to build up the habit of doing the right thing. So when you were studying virtue ethics, uh, you were taken in, I think if I remember from our previous conversation, you were taken in by this author named Alistair McIntyre, yep. who wrote a great book called After Virtue and then promptly became Catholic. Did that factor into your own pilgrimage? It did, but it was very irritating at first because I read After Virtue unaware of Alistair McIntyre's own history. So I read After Virtue and then gave it to the Catholic boy I was dating at the time saying like, I've really found a non-religious philosopher whose position totally makes sense. You know, you've asked what kind of what my answer to Lewis and Chesterton is, and it's this, it's Alistair McIntyre. And, you know, my college boyfriend, Chris is like, you, you know, McIntyre became Catholic, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And I felt very betrayed by Alistair oh, McIntyre so at the time. So talk me through your own pilgrimage at this point. So you have now come to accept virtue ethics. You embraced McIntyre. How did you get from there to RCIA and being received into the church. So the kind of ultimately untenable position I wound up in is that I had on the one hand my atheism, um, and I really took kind of a mathematical cast of mind for lots of this. I love taking mathematics. Um, and so well, that's your background, the, isn't it? Statistics? Medium. It's. I don't know that I have a background. I had a major, which is poli-sci, and then I took a lot of stats and uh, math and proof classes okay. on the side. Um, but... But so the way I thought about it is my atheism kind of was built up only from axioms that I was pretty sure were true. Um, and it was patchy, like mathematics itself. Like I couldn't get everywhere you needed to get in a philosophy from my starting point. But in mathematics, you know, we kind of assume and hope uh, with a couple hand waves around that, that mathematics will ultimately be able to prove most of the things that are true. Um and like we know it actually can't, but it gets most of the way there. Right. So the fact that there were holes in my philosophy, I didn't view as automatically a problem. It just might mean that at 20 something, I hadn't figured out how to extend, you know, my starting truths to cover everything else. So I had my atheism true, but patchy. And then on the other hand, I'd learned more and more about Catholicism, and I'd found more and more that things I thought were dumb about it uh, held together when you saw the whole thing as one coherent philosophy. You know, lots of, lots of Catholicism doesn't make sense if you kind of discuss or defend it in isolation. Original sin, if that's you know, the main thing you're talking about, it does leave you in a position of despair without the cross. Um, and similarly, if you kind of tell the story of Christ without having established the idea of original sin, the cross seems like a sick joke. So each piece in isolation is weird, and when you put the whole thing together, it's extremely weird, but suddenly all holds together. So I had Catholicism, which I thought was coherent, you know, almost the way I thought about it is if I read a, a fantasy novel set in the world where Catholicism was true, there would be a coherence to the story. I'd believe in the world in a way I don't when um, authors are kind of lazy world builders. But I didn't think it was true, ultimately, just like, you know, I don't think that Lord of the Rings describes a real place that exists. And for me, the flip was really having a reason to think that Catholicism, this kind of intricate, you know, let's say Gothic philosophy, um, really could turn on and be true. 
And that came down to me, that question of where does the sense of the natural law, which I concede and pretty much everyone, as long as you don't ask them to concede it in those words, concedes, where does the sense of the natural law come from? And so it was that question that led you to believe that Catholicism was true because you got to the point that you realized, okay, this is not a self-refuting philosophy. This is coherent in and of itself, but that doesn't, you know, coherence alone doesn't make truth. So it is coherent, but it was the, it was the point at which you realized that you needed natural law that made you convinced that Catholicism was also true, coherent and true. It was the point at which I, you know, knew I'd already conceded natural law, and I'd I'd always conceded it. Um, and for me, the question was: Is there is there a way I have knowledge of the transcendent as someone who is not myself transcendent that I can explain kind of purely by recourse to my own powers? And my answer was no. And so at that point, you just found a priest and said, "I want to join RCIA. <laughs> <laughs> Bring me in." Uh, well, let's see. Um, I'd already found priests that I've been like reading and discussing things with. Um, but the night I changed my mind, I was actually with a friend who at that time was a Lutheran and is now information to be, um, an Anglican priest. And so once I had the conversation and changed my mind with him, we prayed night office and then listened to Mumford and Sons and then went back to our rooms and went to bed. So it was a exciting night, which was the evening right before Palm Sunday of that year. Wow. Good timing. That's great. Yeah. Well, bad timing if you think about it one way, because many Catholic churches do one cycle of RCIA. That's true. And then you have to go through a whole year. Yeah. So so I kind of converted as far away as you can from getting into the church. But the priest I knew in D.C., a Dominican, picked my parish for me and picked it partly because of the great community there and partly because they ran two cycles of RCIA a year. And I got to come in on the Feast of Christ the King in November. That's fantastic. Good for the Dominicans. I love the Dominicans. Oh, they're They're great. I've got a Dominican for my godfather. Awesome. Good. That's fantastic. Um, okay, so you you came into the church what 2013? Uh, 2012. 2012. Okay. Well, since then we've had a lot of developments in the church, and you came in guns blazing 2012, probably very excited to be Catholic. Has that excitement wavered at all since that day almost seven years ago? I I wouldn't say it's wavered. I'd say that kind of the tone of what the excitement is is different at different times where there are some times when it's just, you know, it's very exciting to be Catholic. It's the Easter vigil or the feast of a saint I love, or I'm singing a, a hymn. That's really just what I want at that moment. And there's times when that fervency is kind of expressed a different way as in I'm much angrier at, you know, a bishop who's done wrong than I would be if this were someone else's problem. And if the fate of people's souls didn't hinge on his behavior. Right. That makes sense. Um, what would you say to someone who asked you why you've stayed despite all of the problems that the church has? Why haven't you become Orthodox or just left the church altogether, left Christianity altogether? What is it about Catholicism that's made you stay? And the answer is because I think it's true. Um, which, you know, I think people, again, find a little more sympathetic in the more abstract professions. Um, you know, economics has had a, a different tenor, but um, a big problem with sexual harassment and holding back female uh, economists. Right. And honestly, I'm way less certain ec- all of economics is true in the sense that, you know, algebra is true in math. But you kind of do face the problem of if if you want to study these things, where else can you go? Uh This is the community of people asking these questions. Um, But in the Catholic Church, on top of everything else, you know, I could never abandon mathematics because mathematicians sucked. 
um, because it would still be the same discipline. But in Catholicism, we really believe that the deposit of faith was handed on to this particular church, which is the universal church. And you just can't do the discipline of seeking truth and loving God fully outside of it. I think one possible response that I know I've heard from some people close to me is that the the scandals in the church make them think or, or make them less inclined to believe that the church has the deposit of faith. Have you found that to be the case at all, or does it in some ways strengthen your belief that the truth is here? It doesn't it doesn't kind of push me very hard in one direction or the other, partly because you know the scandals are not theological per se. Um, they're horrific and vicious and sinful, but they don't, they involve blasphemy, not heresy, I would say. Um, this isn't a question of people teaching things that are false about who Christ is or how we worship him. It's people profaning the altar they claim to serve. So you kind of worry for individual priests or bishops um, for their own soul or for anything else that they, having you know, made vows of love to God, act so disrespectfully towards the people he's called them to serve. Um, but it's almost that when you see a dysfunctional family, it's not a claim that the concept of family doesn't exist. It's people betraying what their responsibilities are. And to kind of discard the idea that their responsibilities exist because they've lived them out so badly would would almost be taking the side of the bad father to go, I guess fatherhood doesn't exist. We see a terrible priest and to conclude priests, you know, don't exist versus this man is a terrible priest and has to reform his life and make amends or you know, he's in grave danger of hell. Right. I think I would push back on a little bit on your claim a little bit though, that it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a theological problem because I mean, blasphemy itself is a reflection of a theological problem. And even if it's not about catechesis the problem is a that theological problem for these individual men but right i don't think it's a case where they're teaching the heresy um, okay they're yeah. just themselves blaspheming right that makes sense but I, I do think that the the theological problem is self-evident to some degree in that these men they don't honor the position of authority that they have and they don't believe that the ontological change they're supposed to believe has actually taken place and um, they abuse their their authority in that way but i think in some respects we also need to have a a healthy wariness of the human element of the church anyway, because this has been a problem that's that's not new in the church's history at all. And yet still Absolutely. the church is here and the church is still proclaiming the gospel and the church is still full of remarkable men and women who are saints or who are going to be saints. And so um, it also it also has not pushed me far one way or the other. I still remain as convinced as I ever was that the church holds a deposit of faith. But I think what I would say is now being on the inside I'm a little bit more keenly aware of the need for men and women, uh, priests, um, religious and lay, to stand up for the truth and to stand up for good catechesis and for good liturgy and for good theological formation and all of those things. Absolutely. And you know, I think part of standing up for those things is saying you know, what these men did was serious and it can be serious without kind of undermining is the Catholic Church true because we were loved by a God who cares about the fall of a sparrow and numbers every hair on our heads, right? We, God and Jesus aren't people who say, well, as long as the overall institution is still ticking, it doesn't matter very much what happens to individuals, right? And I think sometimes that itself is part of our our witness to offer, which is, yeah, you know, the Catholic Church still true, you know, 
no individual can endanger it. But when people harm people, that's unbelievably serious. If there were one priest who had harmed one person, that would itself be a crisis because every person's worth is infinite. Yeah, that's a really good perspective and a good way of looking at it. I do want to say, too, this is a, a little bit of a different topic, but one thing that has always stuck with me from what you told me uh, in our first conversation three years ago about your book, Arriving at Amen, is uh, in that book, you talk a little bit about um, how you're having trouble with the repetition of the rosary. And mm -hmm. this just, I think, goes to how much God loves each and every one of us. But you said that you were having you were having trouble with repetition, and then it occurred to you that it's almost like like a dance, and you were you had like the rhythm in your head. I think of sort of one two three one two three, almost like you were doing a waltz. And that stuck with me because I too have had some some problems with the the repetition of liturgical prayers. But as I've thought about it as a dance, I've thought about you know what do you do in a dance? But you embrace your beloved, right? So it's lover and beloved in in an embrace, and then an embrace like that. If you think of the if you think of prayer as an embrace like that. Prayer is an intimate encounter with the God, the creator of the universe, who also loves you, individually you, the very person of you. And that's a really powerful way of thinking about it and of characterizing the love of God that the church proclaims. And that's exactly why it would be a scandal if even you know one of these children were harmed. Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that kind of comes up in repetitive prayer with that sense of, you know, am I doing this well? I've gotten bored or, you know, I got distracted or anything else is it's also just a reminder that we aren't actually very good at prayer. Um, and that prayer isn't something that's about our individual excellence uh, to show God necessarily. It is about spending time with him receptively, which is why I like that metaphor of dance, depending on your partner to move you. Right. And I really love the writings of uh, the Benedictine Dom John Chapman on this, where you know, he says there's something very you know, spiritually helpful in just you know, spending time in prayer and going like, ah, I was lousy at that. And remembering that's true. Um, and God doesn't have us pray because he wants to see how good we are at it or because we're offering God something he lacked, but for us praying, uh, he has us pray because we need to, and because he's seeking us out every moment and we occasionally remember to respond and listen. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Leah, we've got a few minutes left here. Can you tell me a little bit about your most recent book, building the Benedict option? Absolutely. So this is a book I was interested in writing because Rod Dreher's Benedict Option book stirred up a lot of people, I would say. But yeah, for sure. <laughs> stirred them up about was the question of how do we deepen Christian community? And Rod, to his credit, in his book really talks about a variety of different models people are living. A lot of the online discourse about the book was about um, should we all go live in the mountains um, in retreats? And I think the the mountainous retreat on the cover of his book did not help. Right, for sure. Um, but my focus is really, you know, I saw people having this discussion and there's always this pull towards the long term where people get excited about, well, what could this look like in the very long term? But there's a temptation to ignore what's going on in the here and now. Because once I say, what kind of homeschooling co-op could we set up in 10 years? It's both an interesting question that might shape what I do here and in, in the here and now, but it can be distracting from what is the work that's before me where I am. So my book, Building the Benedict Option, is really focused on how can you move deeper into prayer and deeper into hospitality with others in the next two weeks to two months. And I'm really focused on what you can do wherever you are, kind of however small your kitchen is, however unprepared you feel. You don't have to be better than you are now to to start praying with other people or to start sharing hospitality. 
if you keep doing it, just like with virtue ethics, you may get a lot better at it or a lot of opportunities may open, but God didn't make anyone who's incapable of praying with others or welcoming others. I love that. And uh, I do have to say that I appreciate how you and Alexi really do live out the hospitality. I remember seeing, you know, Facebook invitations uh, to, to just you know, any, any Facebook friends who wanted to come to come to your apartment for an evening of, uh, you know, Shakespeare reading or a game night or something like that. And so I think you guys are really living out hospitality in, in an important way. And I appreciate your sort of caveats to the Benedict Option verbiage, because I think Dreyer's book has has definitely instigated a lot of controversy because, mm-hmm. uh, well, for a number of reasons. I think there are legitimate critiques to his ideas, but I also think that uh, the most misplaced critique is just that his his idea is that you have to go off and live in a retreat and never engage, right? And yeah. uh, and that's not a, that's not an accurate characterization. So I like how your book, which I should mention, uh, the four was written by Dreyer. Your mm-hmm. book your book puts a a much more positive spin on it because it's not it's no longer about retreat but it's about active building and that's why you are interested in building the Benedict Option so I think that's great and I would say to your listeners, uh, yesterday we had my birthday party, which was about 12 people over to read The Winter's Tale because it's very hot in New York City. So we thought that'd be a nice good choice. Yeah. Break. But we have 12 people over in our studio apartment. So there's only one room in our house. Um, and we had cake and we had it on paper plates and everyone had a good time. So, you know. If there are things that are holding you back from inviting people over to be with them and to pray and it's I don't want to do dishes you can have people over and not do dishes. You know, I don't know if my house is big enough. Well, depending on who you're having, like you can squeeze. Um, whenever, whenever you invite people over in love, that is almost always more important to them than what kind of plates you're serving or even whether you're serving food at all. Such a good point. And my wife is really good at reminding me of this too, because uh, I, you know, when I, when we have people over, I want to make sure everything's perfect. And Sally is much more focused on making sure that they feel welcome and loved and, you know, there's a reason, for example, that we have, we've been married for, uh, how long now? Seven years almost. <laughs> and, uh, we still have metal folding chairs as our dining room, uh, furniture. So, <laughs> nice. you know, we're, we also, uh, and, and Sally's, Sally's the reason here, but we are prior, trying to prioritize the actual hospitality and not the, the sort of environment of the hospitality. So, uh, but that's yep. great. Thank you to you and Alexi for your witness on that. And if it helps people, you know, both when you go over to other people's houses, notice how much you don't mind if they haven't dusted. That's true. Yeah, really good point. Yeah, I mean, and it's. I just think of when I go over when I go to people's houses and they say like, "I'm so sorry for the mess." I'm not thinking about the mess at all, and I don't really no. care about the mess because all the mess does is reminds me that they are human like I am. And when you feel bad about your own house right before you have people over, like walk through, look at the mess, and go. Wow, I guess in addition to having people over, which is itself already a gift, the fact that my house is messy may embolden one of my guests to invite people over because they see you can do this. There you go. I like that perspective too. Nice. Well, Leah, where can people find more of your work and uh, and Alexi's work as well? I know you both are writing quite a bit these days and doing good work. And I also know that you're about to head out to Princeton to work with Catholic students there uh, as uh, as your job. So if you're if you're a listener and you're at Princeton, go find uh, Leah and Alexi because they'll be there very shortly. But tell me where listeners can find more of your work. So I put together my writing at LeahLabresco.com. That's Labresco, L-I-B-R-E-S-C-O, which is also where you can contact me if you'd like me to come speak to your parish. Um, and my husband's work, and he's got a really thoughtful review of The Good Place since you mentioned it. Oh, great. It's all at AlexiSargent.com, Sargent, S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Leah. Best wishes to you and Alexi as you head out to Princeton, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you.